Podcasting. The PSAs you hear on Miller and Condon and iHeartMedia Des Moines are presented in part by Nick Mick. We take care of our own. Now, here's Miller and Condon. Right, Miller and Condon, 1460 KXNO 106.3 FM. Here is the governor of the state of Iowa, Kim Reynolds. As you know, last Wednesday, uh, I was at the White House at the invitation of the president to discuss Iowa's response to COVID-19. Then on Friday, I joined Vice President Pence, Senators Grassley and Ernst when he visited our state to meet with religious leaders and to host a roundtable discussion about the importance of the food supply chain. During that time, we learned that a member of the vice president's staff tested positive for COVID-19. This weekend, I was notified that the individual was present during my visit to the White House, although I had no direct contact with her. However, out of an abundance of caution, I will follow a modified quarantine plan similar to what Dr. Fauci and other White House administration members have announced that they're doing. As is part of our normal daily routine here at SEAC, my temperature will be taken before entering the building. I'll be tested daily. I was tested this morning and it was negative. And while here, I'll practice social distancing and wear a mask when interacting with others, which will be minimal interaction. If I begin experiencing any systems, of course, I will stay home. I spoke with my team over the weekend, and most will be working from home during this this time, especially if they um, or a family member have health conditions that puts them at a higher risk. These steps are similar to what I've asked all Iowans to do if they've had contact with someone known to have the virus. Again, while I didn't have direct contact with the vice president's staff member, it's important that I do my part to protect those around me while continuing to serve as your governor during this critical time. I want to assure Iowans that I'm healthy and feeling good, and I'm fully focused on leading Iowa's response to the pandemic on our economic recovery efforts. Over the next few days, we may slightly adjust our routine to accommodate the situation, and we'll keep you updated regarding any potential changes. Today, I also wanted to provide an update on the progress we're seeing in key areas of our state and our continued expansion of testing, both through Test Iowa and our targeted strike teams. As you're aware, Eastern Iowa was the first area of our state to be significantly impacted by the virus, especially Lynn and Johnson counties. Over the last two weeks, we've seen both counties stabilize and gradually trend downward, which is a good sign that the virus activity is decreasing and becoming more manageable. We've seen similar results in neighboring Washington and Louisa counties, while long-term care and manufacturing facility outbreaks uh, occurred where they did occur. Blackhawk County is a more recent hotspot. It also is showing positive signs of stabilizing. In all of these areas, as virus activity was increasing, we took a proactive measure to mitigate the spread of the virus so we wouldn't overwhelm our health care system. And we used targeted testing strategies to better understand how to contain and manage it. We launched our strike teams with Tyson and Columbus Junction, again providing diagnostic uh, and serology testing for every employee. We identified and isolated positive cases uh, 
practiced case, practiced case investigations, uh, helped our employees recover and really provide the reassurance and confidence to return to work in a safe environment while keeping the food supply chain moving. When another outbreak was suspected at the Tyson plant in Waterloo, we sent additional testing supplies to a number of clinics in the area so that they could increase testing in the community and we worked directly with the plant to test all employees, again both diagnostic and uh, serology. We also opened a test Iowa site in Waterloo so residents in surrounding area could also be tested if they had symptoms or had been in contact with someone who had had the virus. To date, we've, had, we've tested in long-term care facilities about 1,324 uh, staff and residents in about 115 facilities. Through our manufacturing facilities, we've tested over 9,400 uh, uh, employees in 14 facilities and probably another 3,000 this week. Expanding testing in, tar in a targeted way such as this helps us confirm how the virus is spreading and while it drives our positive case count up for the short term, more importantly, it informs us how to effectively manage virus activity for the long term. Positive cases in all these areas um, are now stabilizing and trending downward. And another sign of progress is that hospitalization rates in the RMCC 5th and 6th region, which cover eastern Iowa, are also stabilizing or trending down and hospital resources are in good supply. In other parts of the state, we're monitoring an increase in virus activity and we're implementing similar strategies. Just as we've seen at the national level as the virus steadily migrated from the East Coast toward the Midwest, Iowa's virus activity is now increasing in central and western Iowa communities. Polk County has the highest number of positive cases in the state, which is to be expected because the Des Moines metro area has the most concentrated population in our state. And again, we've been conducting long-term care and manufacturing strike teams in the surrounding counties in the central Iowa, uh, in central Iowa and increasing testing in the area through Test Iowa. We've also seen some increased activity in the Sioux City area where we've opened a Test Iowa site and are conducting surveillance testing in long-term care and manufacturing with long-term care and manufacturing strike teams. We've also been monitoring an increase in virus activity in Crawford County where we opened another Test Iowa site on Saturday and are testing employees again at long-term care facilities, manufacturing facilities and throughout the community. As anticipated, hospitalizations in RMCC regions 1 and 3 has, um, have risen as a result of the increased virus activity in these areas and again tied to the additional testing that we're performing. So we're working closely with the healthcare systems to monitor resources and assist as needed and again we've seen just great collaboration among our healthcare systems both from a regional perspective and a state perspective. And these are some of the conditions and indicators that we're monitoring on a daily basis as we make decisions about how to continue to ease mitigation restrictions and reopen Iowa safely and responsibly. We know that virus activity will exist in our communities until a vaccine is available. But through expanded and targeted testing, case investigation and tracing, and by continuing to take preventive measures to protect our own health and the health of others, I believe that we can and will be able to contain and manage the virus and balance the health of Iowans with the health of our economy. And Iowans continue to respond in amazing ways. Throughout the last several weeks, Iowans have risen, risen to the occasion time and time again to do their part to help those in need.
There are so many heartwarming, heartwarming stories, um, but one that continues to inspire me is how the state that feeds the world has stepped up to make sure that our own aren't going hungry. As demand for food assistance quickly outweighed supply in our food banks and pantries, I created the Feeding Iowa's Task Force, and I asked the Lieutenant Governor uh, to lead that effort. Lieutenant Governor Gregg is joining me today to provide an update. Lieutenant Governor. Good morning. Thank you, Governor, and thank you for prioritizing food insecurity during the pandemic and assigning me to lead this very important and rewarding effort. I'm proud to give you all an update on the work of the Feeding Iowans Task Force today. The Feeding Iowans Task Force, as a reminder, is made up of leaders from the Iowa Food Bank Association, food pantries, the Iowa Department of Agriculture, Volunteer Iowa, and leaders from numerous state agencies like the Department of Homeland Security and Emergency Management, and the Departments of Human Services and Public Health and others. We've been focusing on raising the profile of food insecurity issues during the pandemic and especially helping connect those who may find themselves newly food insecure with the resources that are available to help them. And as a reminder, more information on those resources can be found at www.coronavirus.iowa.gov. We've been also uh, working with the, uh, to assist the food banks with staffing and logistics support during this time of unprecedented and increased demand. As you know, the governor has assigned the National Guard to assist the food banks, and they've been running daily missions, organizing mass distribution events, packing boxes, and distributing food from the food banks to the food pantries across the state. But the efforts go beyond the National Guard. For example, we have provided new assignments for AmeriCorps workers whose original projects have been canceled or otherwise changed. 311 AmeriCorps members have been reassigned to COVID-19 response and the vast majority of them are now working in the area of food insecurity at places like the Riverbend Food Bank in Davenport and the Northeast Iowa Food Bank in Waterloo. AmeriCorps members have provided over 8,600 hours of assistance already and have helped package or distribute over 156,000 pounds of food. And next week, we'll begin bringing on at least 70 additional summer AmeriCorps positions to work on recovery efforts with food insecurity all across the state. And we're still recruiting members, so this would be a perfect fit for a college student who maybe who has had an internship fall through or a recent high school or college grad who's looking uh, for something to do. You can visit volunteeriowa.org to apply or to find other volunteer opportunities associated with the Feeding Iowans Task Force. We've also forged a partnership with FFA chapters across the state who are seeking to assist in food-related volunteer assistance. For example, the Charles City FFA chapter participated in a food distribution event in partnership with the Northeast Iowa Food Bank, and we're exploring more exciting opportunities for the future. With supply chain crunches in the news, we've also been working on creative ways to develop our own little mini supply chains focused on feeding those in need. A great example of that is the Pass the Pork initiative, which I thought I'd provide a quick update on today. This is the program in which farmers donate pigs, which are then processed in local lockers, typically in rural Iowa, and the ground pork is donated to the food banks. Through the generosity of Iowans, the Pass the Pork initiative has already exceeded over $100,000 in donations, which helps pay for the processing, storage, and distribution of the pork. We want to say thank you to some of the major donors, including Landis Cooperative, Mid-American Energy, Alliant Energy, Conterra Ag, and the Dahl family of Dahl Distributing. I'm also proud to report that on May 6th, the first 4,280 pounds of pork was delivered to the Food Bank of Iowa, with much more to come. 
While this is an effort of the Feeding Iowans Task Force, it simply couldn't have happened without the leadership of Secretary Nag's team at the Iowa Department of Agriculture, and in particular, Deputy, Deputy Secretary Julie Kinney, who serves on the Feeding Iowans Task Force. And I also want to recognize the Iowa Food Bank Association, Iowa Pork, and of course, the incredible generosity of Iowa's pig farmers. So what's next? Well, Governor Reynolds, myself, and the team are analyzing opportunities to further support this work. Resources are available through the CARES Act, FEMA funds, and other resources as well. We're analyzing opportunities to consider expanding and scaling the Pass the Pork initiative and considering including other livestock as well. We're also looking at scaling up existing programs like the Double Up Food Bucks program, which provides a one-to-one -one match of SNAP dollars to assist in the purchase of fresh produce. And we're looking at other ways where we can create our own mini supply chain, such as exploring ways to break down bulk food items and repackage them in sizes that would be useful to a family in need. We hope to be in a position to provide more information in the coming days and weeks. Thanks again, Governor, for assigning me to lead this initiative, for highlighting this critical work, and for empowering the leaders who've been working with us on the Feeding Iowans Task Force. Thank you. Thank you, Adam, and thanks to you and to the entire task force for everything that you've done to not only bring awareness to this important issue, but to generate food and funding that will have a positive effect um, for many, many Iowa, Iowa fam many Iowa families across the state. So great job, and uh, thank you for all that you and the team are doing. In closing, I want to announce that two new Test Iowa sites are opening this week. Today in Davenport at North Park Mall and Wednesday in Ottumwa at Beach Ottumwa. Within three weeks, we'll have opened seven test Iowa sites, expanded our lab capacity, and tested thousands of more Iowans. Test Iowa is making a positive difference for the health of our state, and we're working hard to optimize our operations so that Iowans have the best possible outcome. Over the weekend, we did have a, a small number of Iowans who were tested, who were informed that their samples had unfortunately been damaged and couldn't be processed, and that they would need to be retested. Uh, Tested. While it's not uncommon for a small percentage of samples with any type of test to become damaged, that doesn't make it any less disappointing to those impacted. And so, of course, we want to apologize to those Iowans affected and encourage them to be retested. So, again, a reminder to anyone who's interested in being tested at any one of our locations across the state, the first step is to take the assessment at testiowa.com. If you're eligible for testing, you'll be prompted to schedule an appointment online, and you must have a scheduled appointment to be tested. Again, I want to remind Iowans, though, if you're exhibiting any of the symptoms um, that we've talked about that are related to COVID-19, uh, please call your doctor, and they can go through the assessment with you and help you um, identify whether you need to have an assessment uh, or whether you need to be tested or not. So with that, we will uh, open it up to questions. First question, uh, Chris at KCCI. Hi there, Governor. Uh, question about the remdesivir that I was supposed to be getting. When will it be here? Uh, where will it go and how will it help? I didn't hear what he, I didn't hear the question. I'm sorry. Remdesivir. Oh, okay. Well, we got um, remdesivir. We received it over the weekend. Uh, we've actually had two conference calls with doctors and pharmacists. The second phone call will be this afternoon as long as well as with Dr. Padati and the Department of Public Health team. Um, so they will put the parameters together and agree to what that distribution looks like and it be based on who benefits the most from the drug. And we want to make sure that when we're administrating, administrating it that the physician um, has been connected 
connected with someone that has had experience with the drug. So we received it this weekend. Uh, they're working with, in partnership with doctors and pharmacists. They'll have a second call today, and then they'll make um, the recommendations on where those tests should be performed, who benefits it most, and to make sure that they have consultation uh, with the doctors that are doing that. Rachel, or no, Kay Henderson, Radio Island. Governor, will you allow the public health emergency proclamation currently in place to expire on Friday, or do you plan to have parts of that extended in yeah. counties with higher levels of COVID-19 activity? Yeah, so I'll be making an announcement tomorrow about some of the additional restrictions that will be eased, and then we'll take a look at uh, the overall proclamation that will be extended uh, through the 15th. Well, some of it extended through the end of the month, and then some of it is set to expire on the 15th. So we'll be um, uh, addressing that tomorrow at the press conference. And again, as we take a look at what's happening across the state, and we're able to use the data and the experiences and the strategies that we put in place to help us inform the decisions that we make uh, moving forward. And again, I want to just say that Iowans have been incredibly responsible. We're seeing that as they're continuing to practice social distancing. I think they're wearing uh, face coverings often when they're not able to practice the social distancing. Um, we are seeing businesses be very thoughtful and cautious about how they start to reopen their business so that they can provide the confidence to, you know, the customers that are going to uh, facilitate or, or will come to their places of business. So I've been really impressed with not only what our business community has done, our church community has done, uh, as well as just Iowans in general. And so we're, we can continue, I think, to lessen the restrictions and open up uh, our state and, and start to begin in a very thoughtful, safe, and purposeful way um, to start to continue to reopen, or begin to continue to reopen our economy. Excuse me. Aaron Murphy, Lee News. Uh, thank you, Governor. I'm just uh, wanted to ask, uh, based on what you know now, do, do you think that uh, you should have worn a mask during Friday's events? And, and then more broadly, um, sh should more Iowans be wearing masks? I know you said you, you feel like a lot have. I, I yeah. guess just based on my anecdotal experiences, that number is actually pretty low. And, and just what is the, the administration's formal recommendations on wearing masks in public? Yeah. Well, there's great um, guidance that's been provided by the Department of Public Health, so I would um, uh, stress all Iowans go to the Department of Public Health or coronavirus.iowa.gov. Is it gov? And uh, you can see there where all the guidelines are at. There's guidelines for businesses, for churches, for individuals. So a lot of really helpful information. I did have a face covering with me, but we practiced social distancing the other, t the entire time. And I think that's what we kind of part of the recommendations from the Department of Public Health is that if you're outside, which we want people to get out, especially as the weather gets nice, to get some, to get some exercise and to get outdoors. Um, but still to practice social distancing and if that is if you're in a situation where that's not possible if you have a face covering with you then to go ahead and put that on but again i trust iowans i trust them to do the right thing and i believe they're going to continue to do that moving forward right now we're going to go to rachel on channel five good morning governor um how did iowa get on the short list for getting the first shipments of remdesivir do you want to answer that do you know Um, good morning. Um, our understanding is that um, 
Asper did some analysis uh, based on um, current case counts, and they looked at areas of the country where case counts had increased over the last seven-day period from the time that they were looking at that. So I think our phone call with them was on Wednesday or Thursday of last week. And so they had identified case counts um, in one part of our state as increasing. And so that's our understanding of how they made the, the initial decisions about where those initial shipments were going to go. We're going to go to Ron at KWWL. Morning, Governor. Um, I would like to ask you about far northeast Iowa, Alamakee County. Uh, there's about 112 cases up there uh, believed to be coming out of the Postal area, which is home to the big Agristar plant there. So can you tell us what you know about the situation at Agristar and the possibility of testing uh, in that particular area or yeah. at the plant? So the reason you're seeing a tick up in the increase of positive cases is because we did one of the strike teams. We sent a strike team to uh, Agristar like we've done in many other of our manufacturing and processing facilities. Uh, and it really is twofold. It helps us give, provide some confidence to the employees to start to see the scope uh, of the virus activity within the community and within the plant. Identify those that are positive, identify those that are negative, separate the shifts, help the employees that have tested positive to to begin a, a road to recovery and then as they work through the timeline that they need to recover then again they feel they have the confidence to start to return back to work and to return in a safe environment making sure that we're you know providing them the uh, PPE that they need and that the businesses are doing what they can on the inside of the facility to continue to practice social distancing to continue to do the temperature scan before they enter the facility to make sure that they're doing an assessment to see if they're experiencing any system to separate the breaks, um, the 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 uh, line that they work on to as much as possible, you know, provide this the social distancing there as well. And so it's a combination of all of those. I think it was last week that we sent the strike team up there. I don't know the exact date, but Ron, I can follow up, have Pat follow up with you on that. But that is where we did we sent one of our uh, strike teams. And again, I think the National Guard was very instrumental with some of their um, soldiers in helping us perform. Uh, that strike team in, in Alamakee County. All right, Rod, go ahead. Uh, thank you, Governor. Oh, oh, for allowing schools to start before August 23rd, should there be an Iowa State Fair this August? Oh. Um, other events like Rag Bride have canceled, citing social distancing concerns. Do you, you plan to take any formal action halting county fairs in the Iowa State Fair for 2020, or, or will you leave that decision to them? Well, it's too early, I think, to make that decision, and I know they're watching it very, very closely. And hopefully, if we can continue to see some of the positive signs that we're seeing, especially on the eastern side of the state, where we've done extensive uh, strategic and targeted testing, where we've seen the numbers go up, but we've also seen them come back down. We're seeing uh, the hospitalization trends start to go down. We've certainly been able to manage the resources so that we don't overwhelm the, uh, the hospital systems. And so now we're doing that similar type of testing in central Iowa and western Iowa and you can see over at, what is it about a 7 to 14 day turnaround you can see some significant changes uh, positive changes in the trends and so 
We'll continue to monitor the information that we're receiving. We'll continue to look at the virus activity, uh, have targeted responses to what we're seeing. And so, you know, we're doing that on a daily and a weekly basis, and we're just learning more and more all the time. So I know they're watching it, and we're watching it. And as we continue to learn more and we're continue to, we have the ability to continue to test more, uh, those decisions will be made in the near future. We're going to Dave Price, Channel 13. Good morning, Governor. Can you tell us a little bit more about your daily testing regimen, what process, how long it takes to get results, what that whole experience is like? Yep. So uh, before uh, even moving into a modified quarantine, every day when we would come into the SEAC, every person that enters would get their temperature taken and would be asked if they'd have any, they're exhibiting any symptoms. So now I will be taking not only my temperature with a thermometer in the morning throughout the day and then again in the evening. In addition to that, on my way before I even come to the SEAC, uh, I will be tested. Uh, I was tested this morning. We get the results back in about 10 minutes. And of course, if they continue to be um, negative, then I will um, come to the SEAC. I will be wearing uh, a mask. I don't have one on now because of the press conference. But when I leave, I've got a mask that I'll put back on um, just and we'll be practicing social distancing and will really minimize my interactions uh, with the team members that are out here and I will be doing some work from home as well with zoom calls and uh, the ability to work um, from home we're able to continue to do business and continue to uh, serve Iowans in that capacity as well so it'll be a combination of all of those but we will continue to test every day before I even you know come to the to the Seahawk Caroline go ahead Good morning, Governor. Uh, Sarah just mentioned that um, the cases, the case trends upticking over the past seven days is kind of the basis for why Iowa qualified to get approval for um, the uh, treatment drug or remdesivir, if I'm saying that correctly. Pretty and, good. Um, so that being acknowledged that cases are continuing to increase, you know, what what is your response to Iowans who uh, want to know why we might be seeing more restrictions eased um, at the end of this week, like you teased earlier in this news yeah. conference, saying that you might let some of them expire. Yep. Well, it's because of that very testing. We had the opportunity with Dr. Uh, Padati when we were at the White House to talk to Dr. Burks. She wasn't aware that we were doing extensive targeted testing in a lot of our manufacturing and processing facilities. And so they were very impressed with the testing, not only the diagnostic, but the serologic testing that we were doing as well. And especially with the um, case investigation and the contact tracing, she um, really uh, recommended um, commended us on our ability to do that as well. And so once we put it into context with what we had been doing in the state, she said, well, that explains some of the increase in the numbers that we were seeing, not only in the Des Moines area, but also uh, in, in Northwest Iowa as well. And so, um, you know, so we were able to explain that. That's what we were able to explain to Iowans, just like we saw at some of the facilities in the eastern side of the state. So 
you see a fairly high uptake of positive cases. What we're also seeing, um, and I'm anxious to get some more results from that, is with uh, some trends and data from the serologic testing that we're doing because so many Iowans have been asymptomatic. And that really helps us, I think, speak to the data that says that 80% of Iowans who test uh, positive for COVID-19 have mild or little to no symptoms at all. It's the 20% uh, older Iowans with underlying conditions that are at most risk, and that's really who we need to be focused on. And no matter what we do when we ease restrictions, our recommendation will continue to be to those uh, vulnerable Iowans to, to continue to stay home, to limit your exposure. If you go out, to be very mindful about wearing face covering, um, but to really limit uh, the amount of times that you leave the home until that until we can really start to uh, see our numbers continue to trend down in a significant manner. So, um, you know, it gave us an opportunity to explain what was going on. They didn't have the context of that when they were sending out the remdesivir, and so um, they were. It brought more context to the to the situation. All right, that was uh, Governor Kim Reynolds, her daily press conference. Again, we'll continue to carry those uh, as long as the uh, need presents itself. KXNO and iHeart want to help you with your bills. Text the keyword COUCH to 200-200. Right now, it's your chance to win $1,000. That's COUCH to 200-200. You'll get a confirmation text and info. Standard data and message rates apply in this nationwide contest. All right, uh, Pete Futek from College Football News. He joins Trent and I next as we take you up until noon on Des Moines Sports Station 1460 KXNO and 106- Thank you for supporting Food Bank of Iowa. Ken Miller, Trent Condon, Miller and Condon on 1460 KXNO. And now on 106.3 FM. like my kitchen sink. A little slow? No, the drip. All right, welcome back, Miller and Condon at Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO and 106.3 FM. We take you until noon. I'm Murph and Andy. Slide on in here at 2, the Fanatics at 4. Let's talk college football. Boy, Trent, I, I know that, uh, like me, you spend a lot of time on collegefootballnews.com. Uh-huh. They've been pumping out the content like crazy. If you're jonesing for college football, they've got you covered there. Pete Futak joins us. Uh, Pete, hats off to you and your staff over there at College Football News. Uh, you've been busy. Hey, welcome to the land of the delusional. Hey, let, let's just hope this all happens, and right. we're going to go forward as, as as if it will. And you know, it might. We'll see. But uh, at the very least, it's up there now, so we're treating this like any other May. And once it stops, or if it stops or changes, we will adapt from there. Indeed. I, sadly, I think we're going to be adapting, but fingers crossed that we're not, and we shall see. If we do have to adapt, Peyton, I think this is going to be the question. Uh, for the just kind of popped into most people's uh, minds last week when we heard, you know, Mark Emmert say one thing and conference commissioners say the exact opposite of what Mark Emmert said. Who ultimately is going to determine what we're going to do? Will it be every conference on their own? Because uh, that seems like maybe at this point that might be the best uh, the best option. Yeah, you know, and I, as I start here, honest, obviously I come from a place where, you know, I have college and football in my business title. So I have a, you know, vested interest in this and I do not want to make anything political in any way here. Uh, but it's, I do think it's going to go along party and, uh, political lines where 
there are going to be certain states and certain places where it's just going to be a non-starter, where they're just going to say, like, you know, whether it's California or places with big cities where there's outbreaks, uh, they're just going to be like, no, we just we cannot do this. We cannot figure this out. Whereas a lot of the you know states where they might have smaller cities and uh, a little more lax uh, restrictions, like in the Big 12, like in the SEC, uh, where things aren't really are all that bad, where they might be able to figure out a way to way to do this. So I don't think this is going to be able to go off like normal, mainly because nothing's changed. I mean, the the real part about this that all sucks is that we're in no different place than we were six to eight weeks ago when this all shut down. It's just people are now bored. So how do you do this and do it safely? And I think the pros are going to be able to figure it out, but colleges, there are so many different dynamics to this that make it difficult that I don't know how you do, but some some of these places are going to give it a shot. Pete, earlier today, Ken posed a question to me asking about bowl games. And we were talking about, I believe that conferences, as you said, they're going to look different. The SEC is going to look different than the Pac-12 and the schedule that they put out. But as it pertains to bowl games, the likelihood that we just see the playoff, or maybe we just see the playoff in a couple of the other major bowl games, all these are businesses. They're trying to stay in business, too. What's the likelihood we get a Red Box Bowl? What's the likelihood yeah. the Belk Bowl is still around? Uh, well, it's not. Pretty pretty good. I mean, here's the crazy part about it is that bowl games are different than every other part of this puzzle because they do rely on ticket sales by the schools. It doesn't necessarily mean that the people show up. So you do have some of these bowls that are really friends and family in the stands. But each school has to buy up their allotment of whatever, 15,000 tickets or something like that, so they have the right to play in it. So it's a little bit of a different animal. But the problem with bowl games is it might just be the timing. Like, we don't know how this is going to play out in terms of just logistics schedule-wise. Maybe there's a way that they say that someone says, okay, look, you guys can play college football, but it's going to be starting in, like, October 15th through December 20th or something like that. You know, maybe it just doesn't – you can't work within the bowl system. So it's going to be very difficult to see how this works. Uh, but I do think that's one of the one ways it's going to probably be sacrificed more than anything else because bowl games require total travel. Like, are you going to – who's going to have the disposable income to do it? People didn't have that money mm-hmm. to have it to begin with. So you're not going to really have people decide to travel and take planes and stay in hotels. I mean, we're really only talking a few months from now. You know, we're, right. as crazy as this is, you know, if we're doing this, college football starts up in, you know, really for at least practice-wise in three months. So I don't think we're going to be in any different spot then. Pete Futek, collegefootballnews.com uh, is our guest. Pete, did you hear Jim Harbaugh's comments? And look, on, on one issue, I, I, I'm, all, I'm all for it. I think that uh, the athletes should be able to have a, uh, a freebie, if you will, as far as one transfer um, uh, during, during the allotment, whatever that is, four or five years, but they get to transfer without sitting down. Yep. Where I did disagree with him a little bit is the fact that after one year of college, uh, that NFL players can go, that they, that can declare for the NFL. If they don't get drafted, they can come back, which I like. But the likelihood that most guys are going to get drafted, I mean, offensive linemen, their freshman year, they're 280 pounds for crying out loud. You're going up against grown men, as you know, on Sunday. I don't see that that's going to be 
something that a lot of players uh, will be leaving behind the college uh, experience after one year. Do you? I do only if you think you can get paid. And this really applies to the elite of the elite because, look, if you can go make money, go do it. Like, right now, if you're, say, Najee Harris, you know, running back of Alabama, or Travis Etienne of Clemson, you're kicking yourself yeah. because you blew it. Because you're now, there's a really solid chance that there's not a part of a college football season, or if there is, there might, it might be canceled entirely. And you could be getting paid right now. And so why are you risking anything at this point? Because you're not going to have your college experience potentially like you were hoping for. And so there are situations like that. But to your point, yeah, it's crazy that some of these guys have to come back. Look, you can go and maybe you sit on a bench for a few years. Remember, if you're a really talented player and you think you've got it, the key to all this is getting you that second contract. Mm -hmm. Because there's nothing better than a rookie contract for a really good player. So let's say you're a good prospect, and you're right, you haven't matured yet, your body type's not there yet, but there's a way for the NFL to maybe increase the practice squad, maybe hold rights a little bit longer, however it works, but maybe you want to get there and you think, look, I am going to be a 10-year pro. I do have that sort of skill. I get in the league now. I'm not there yet, but in three years I will be, and by that time my contract, my better contracts kick in. So there's a way to do this, So. It's fine. I, I, I do think the undrafted players should be able to come back. And look, the odds are astronomical. If you're not drafted in the top three rounds, the chances of you being a real starter or a real player in a league for a team are really, really slim. So I do think that there they should be some way that this needs to be tweaked a little bit. Pete, uh, we heard more in the last couple of weeks about the sponsorship deals that will be in place for athletes starting in the 2021-22 college sports season. Now, that's a long ways away. we got a lot to figure out before then. But endorsement deals for these athletes, the good, the bad, what you've read into it. Uh, it's overblown. Because remember what they're saying here is the NCAA is doing anything and everything possible to not have to pay players. Look at, you know, not to keep bringing this back to the, the current, what's happening is, but look how financially freaked out all these athletic departments are right now. And we haven't even canceled everything yet. You know, we haven't, this is just the fear after six weeks off of what could happen. And athletic departments are going crazy. They can't afford getting into a pay war where they are able to, you know, pay these players without a complete change and overhaul of their infrastructure and system. And they want to avoid that. So if they can throw a shiny object out there and say, hey, look, you know, you guys can go do endorsement deals within reason. Uh, here you go. The problem with that is, think about the, the pros. Endorsement deals aren't that common. It's not like, it's not like everyone has a Gatorade ad. There's only a few really big-time players and prospects who have any sort of a deal forget getting paid a lot of money to do it. So, yeah, so if you bake into the cake, you're going to know that if you are the starting quarterback for Ohio State or Oklahoma, you're probably going to get something – there's going to have to be a way to figure out around the pay-for-play guardrail that they want to put up, whereas it, normally if you know you're going, you're going to Oregon, you could appear in a Nike ad, or hey, if you're, a, if you're a Zion-type basketball player, you might have a shoe named after you. I mean, there's all sorts of ways to mess, this around, mess around with this, and it's okay. That's actually the answer here, because in terms of paying salaries, how do you pay Trevor Lawrence compared to the, you know, the third-string punter for Central Michigan? So this is kind of a way to, to equalize all that. 
but they're sort of putting uh, guardrails around it, saying as long as you're not interfering with our NCAA interests, and as long as you're not doing this and that, then it's okay. But I don't think a whole lot of people are going to be able to do uh, various deals like they think they are. Uh, my last thing for you, know, back to Etienne and to, to Najee Harris. Do you think guys like that, that because of the uncertainty for this year, that we'll see more uh, eligible players try to find a spot in the supplement of the NFL supplemental draft that is uh, still to happen? Might we see more of that? How do you not look into it? Like, how do you not think ahead? Like, again, I, I it, part, there's so many parts to this equation, which is, uh, like, right now, you might not, you might be trying to train and for nothing, right. for just a lost year that you're not getting paid. Or let's say you do go play and you're part of a college campus. Who knows what these things are going to look like because there's no social distancing, you got tens of thousands of people for all over the world. Like, heaven forbid you go out there, you play, you're part of the college atmosphere. You get this virus. Where's your draft stock then? We don't know what the effects are on this body long term. So you've got a multi-million dollar investment if you're a Trevor Lawrence or a Justin Fields or something like this. Are they going to want to mess with it? Yeah, they'll go out there and play. They'll go out there and do what they do because that's just what they do. But how do you not have, you know, this is where, back to your other point about uh, the doing uh, various marketing deals and stuff. Can these players have agents? Do you have advisors? This is where you need more adults in the room who can kind of talk to these kids and say, look, here's all the options that are available to you. But I don't think that necessarily happens. I I do think it's going to be full. If if these guys who decide to stay are still sticking around, they're going to still be full systems go once the college season happens in some way, shape, or form that I do think they're going to figure out. We're going to have a couple games somehow. Hopefully we have a long, happy season. Pete Tech College Football News. Pete, final thing for me as we round back into football as long as we see it this year. This would normally be the time we'd have you on. Spring practice would be over. We'd be talking about the contenders, Clemson, Alabama, Ohio State, LSU, Oklahoma, Penn State, on and on and on. Give me your dark horse. If we went through a normal spring and that team maybe in the teens of some of those top 25s, in the 20s, that you say, you know what, this is my dark horse. This is a team that's going to get into the playoff. Who do you got? Yeah, you know, it, what's going to be interesting about this, let's say it happens. Let's say they, they figure it out and we are all systems go. Uh, the other X factor in all this when trying to figure out this is how much time are these schools going to get? Because, you know, you have James Franklin and others who are saying, hey, we need two months to get a team ready. Mac Brown is kind of like, hey, look, tell us where we need to be and we'll show up and play. Uh, so there's going to be a disparity in time. And who's Who's got the least amount of turnover? Who has the who has stuff that they don't have to deal with? And so, like the Mississippi State of the world, who are changing their offense entirely. You know, Ole Miss with Lane Kiffin coming in. So schools like that. So who does not have to do all that? There's no one outside of the teams that just have ridiculous talent that's right there. Texas gets a whole lot of parts back that didn't have to mess around. USC gets just about everybody back. Um, that's one of those dark horse teams that has the Pac-12 South stinks. We don't know exactly what the rest of the North is going to look like right now. And who knows if the Pac-12 is even playing, but uh, that's one of those teams that gets just about everyone back that could at least make a run to be 11-1-ish by the time championship uh, weekend comes around. But this is the year. I mean, to to the whole point of this is that this is the time where you might have teams outside of the obvious names you rattled off just because some teams are going to have a little more prep time, a little more experience, and a little more of the parts in place 
whereas maybe in Ohio State or Clemson or something like this, just isn't able to have the same kind of practice groove that these other places are have. So we, we might have something kind of funky in all this. And to answer your question directly, the, the one team out there that I could see really rising up, Texas A&M, is mm-hmm. that if they get everyone back, they have an experienced quarterback, experienced offense, experienced coaching staff in place, it's still the SEC, but if you're ever going to find a team like that who's going to rise up and do something interesting, uh, this would probably be the year in which it's sure to be a strange season no matter what. No doubt about it. You mentioned Mac Brown. I'm going to throw North Carolina into the equation. They're in the right division of the ACC, yeah. certainly uh, part uh, uh, playing in the Coastal. Uh, Pete, great hey, stuff. They're going to play UCF right away. Watch out. Oh, do they? Whoa, okay. There yeah. you go. Interesting. Well, I, can't, I can't wait till we get to see that game. How about that? Fingers crossed well, we do. Uh, it'll happen. I just hope it happens where we're not like watching through, you know, gritted teeth and being like, uh-oh, I hope everyone's fine. I just I hope it's all safe. It's still a game, uh, and let's just hope it happens in some way safely. Pete, we'll talk to you in the weeks ahead. Thank you. Later, guys. Good to talk to you. Pete Futek, collegefootballnews.com. As we take you up until just before noon. You know, he mentioned Zion Williamson yeah. briefly. Yeah. Have what you been we, following this at all? Just a little bit. I mean, I saw the bottom line about it. Did one Adidas of the- is is um, you know caught up in it. Uh, one of um, look at this is this is going to be a stain on Duke if nothing else. Trying mm-hmm. honest to God, and I've said this before, and I really believe this as a selfish sports fan. I'd like to bury my head in the sand, please. You just don't want to know because it's just not the it's just not the blue bloods. Now they might no. write bigger checks, right? Right. But let's not kid ourselves that well, this has never happened in our state. Brian Bowen, I think, is a perfect example of that. We're not talking about, he was a good prospect. He was a top 30 player. Top 30 player. Mm-hmm. This isn't Zion. No. This isn't a program changer. Right. All of a sudden, Louisville never involved. Oh, a couple of days before signing period. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. I'd, I'd love to come to Louisville. Yeah. And Petito talked about it and just the way that that transpired. It's dirty. It Recruiting is. is dirty it is. all over the place. And George Niang tweeted something. This has been going on forever. Yes. Not a surprise. Think it's of the not. AAU circuit that he played on, some of the teammates that he had. I'm not saying he got right, paid. He right. might have. I don't know. Right. But I don't want to know. I don't want to know. I think that, I don't know, I think Trent, this is the way it's been going on with this change thing. Because I, I don't see everybody playing by the same rules, right? Mm-hmm. If, 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 if I don't see this completely going away. And then I think it's more of a competitive disadvantage. If everybody's doing it, okay, my head, head meets sand. I don't want to know. But we'd be kidding ourselves and we'd be foolish and completely naive to think that it has not happened within our borders. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, it just goes without saying that something has happened and we've heard whispers and murmurs about things. Yes, there hasn't been outright investigations, but I think of some of the players that got here, big time mm-hmm. prospects mm-hmm. that got two campuses in Ames, mm-hmm. in Iowa City. I think they just did it because they love the campus. We both love the campuses. That, that's not what it is. Right. You're a kid from a different area of the country, and this is the program that you fell in love with. There are those circumstances, but you got to figure few and far between. For Zion, for Duke, boy. I would just love to see Duke get dragged through the mud. Well, and I think they will. I mean, I think they're just going to come up with a you know a slap in the in the hand. Um, what, what what's the expression that somebody uh, commits a violation in some small school gets punished for it or yeah, something? Yeah. It was the old. Uh, 
who was it? I can't. Was it UNLV they were talking I, I about? I don't remember. And Cleveland State, boy, they're there really going to go, take right? it. They're yeah. going to get. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but look, it's it's happening. Duke's going to get embarrassed by it. Shashevsky's going to probably have to sit and testify at some point. But uh, Kansas and Bill Self, what, but they don't care, right? That's not going. Nothing's going to happen to Bill Self. Nothing's going to happen to Kansas. It's going to be business as usual, all over college basketball. You have the realm going on right now with Louisville. Is there notice of allegations were finally handed down? Louisville, though, they did clean house. Patino mm-hmm. gone. Jurek gone. Yeah. LSU. Will Wade still there? Yeah. Arizona making big ass offers. What did he say? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, that was the first part of yeah. the sentence. But yeah, Sean Miller. He's good. He's down there doing his thing. Deny, deny, deny. Yes. Right. And uh, so, anyways, we shall see. All right. That's uh, for the most part going to wrap things up. Zuma Mahente will be a part of the program tomorrow. Sean Devaney on the NBA. A lot of folks think that the NBA is going to be the first to go. Not Major League Baseball. That the NBA is going to figure this thing out first. Therefore, maybe paving the way for the NHL. Uh, the NFL's look. We hope that there's sports before the yeah. NFL. We believe there's going to be, but the NBA going to be first. Sean Devaney's covered the league forever, uh, and he's slated to join us tomorrow. So look forward to catching up with him. It's Restaurant Radio tomorrow. So we've got a busy program. You know, you mentioned kind of who's going to be the league that rips off the bandy that does it because it do- it feels like nobody wants to be first. We're seeing trickling. We're seeing the PGA, but of the big four, if you will, I think the NBA. They're going to come out with their mm-hmm. plan first. This is what we're going to do, and then it'll be a trickle right afterwards. Yep. That there's going to be four, five, six. I don't know how many cities will be the core. They'll they'll be, you know, a, a group of teams will be in one city, a group of teams in another city, and the playoffs will take place. Who knows where? Look, they're already making contingency plans for the Rams. The Chargers, Niners, the Niners, they've all got cities that they're going to be, air quote, attached to if uh, California says no to major sports. You'll say yes to Murph and Andy at 2 and the Fanatics at 4. The Morning Rush back tomorrow at 6. We're Miller and Condon, 10 to noon on Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO, 106.3 FM.